0: You're listening to the SSPX podcast, and welcome to the first episode of our apologetic series. Today, we'll start with the very basic question of whether or not God exists. Father Paul Robinson, the publisher of Angelus Press and prior of St. Isidore's in Denver, Colorado, will join us to discuss this most basic of questions about our understanding of faith, the world, and our purpose. He'll also introduce us into the concept of apologetics and explain why it's vital for every Catholic to undertake a serious study of this field during their lifetime. You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com apologetics, as well as all our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to as well as all of the resources we're posting. But by helping us with a one-time or small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now, let's join Father Paul Robinson right now. Well, Father Robinson, thank you for joining us on this new series that we have started, Apologetics. How are you, Father? I'm am doing well, Andrew. Excited to kick off this new series. Good. Yeah, I am as well. And I, I guess before we get started diving into apologetics in this first episode, what is so important? about apologetics uh, I think I think most Catholics probably have a, some sort of an idea about what apologetics is it's the defense of the faith but if I'm not arguing with anyone does it help me does it help me with my the practice of my own faith what are the reasons for apologetics father
1: yeah well apologetics is designed to give an irrational account of your system of beliefs your system of religious beliefs because of the fact that um, religion is is not an irrational endeavor. Um, there's there's something very rational about religion, at least there's supposed to be. Um, I would I would make the claim that to the degree that a religion is irrational, or in other words, it's not able to provide any rational basis for its beliefs, to that degree, it is a cult. Um, in other words, people are just doing things for no reason whatsoever. Perhaps they're following a charismatic leader, um, or uh, they're they're just having a system of practices that have no foundation in in any reason by uh, any intellectual basis for what they're doing um <clears throat> so the purpose of this series is is for us to provide to to our viewers um the reason why catholics believe what they believe the the intellectual basis for our faith um, that's what apologetics does and I would make the claim just just at the outset that um, this is this is a, an area where Catholicism is is so strong. Um, for one thing, we have a two thousand year history. We've been reflecting upon the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ for two thousand years, um, so we have a very articulated, very well developed theology. Um, but but also because of the fact that that I mean, we we truly believe that Catholicism is the true faith. It comes from God. Um, And if Catholicism, in fact, does come from God, if he, in other words, has spoken to us and given us truths of the supernatural order, and that same God is also the one who's created the natural order, um, and, and part of that natural order is our reason, then it would make sense that Catholicism would be able to make this bridge between the natural and the supernatural order in the best way. That in other words, we would we would be able to use um, what we know about the natural order to explain and and make coherent to people what we believe in the supernatural order because there would be an interlocking connection between the two. Um, so, in the end of the day, Catholicism makes a lot of sense, and that's what it's the, our, the burden is upon us to to manifest that in these episodes that that we're going to be going through
0: are we able father to give proofs of the faith is it is it possible to say yes without a doubt this is this is true is that the is that what we're going to be doing in apologetics
1: yeah well that's uh an important question to address because there has to be a delicate balance in, um, addressing these, these questions of supernatural truths. So obviously if we're talking about faith, um, it's, we're not talking about things that will be subject to mathematical demonstration. Um, anything that, that is in the realm of, of religion or the vast majority of, of the things that, that are revealed by God could not have been known by human reason alone. So, what I was talking about um, the, the, the areas of, of the sex is, is, is those people who have religious beliefs and they say that there is no rational foundation whatsoever. You just believe it blindly. Um, and on, on the other end of the spectrum would, would be those people who would claim that they would be able to prove with like demonstrative mathematical proof um, what they believe. And, it, and it, if that's the case, there is no faith. On the, on the one hand, there's like 100% total faith. You, you, you don't know why you're believing what, what you're believing. They're, they're like, money grows on trees. And you're like, okay. Like, well, prove it. Can you give some sort of rational basis for that? And they'd be like, no, and they just believe it. <laughs> you're like, okay, this is what you have to do. I was like, okay. Um, and, and the other, other area is like, no, we can actually prove to you that the money grows on trees mathematically. So there's there's a middle ground where um, you have supernatural truths that are believed in a religion, and you provide to, the, to those who are prospective believers certain motives of credibility, what are called motives of credibility. Um, we, we provide rational arguments that point in the direction of this supernatural reality being true while it, it's not able to prove definitively. Um, so there's, there, it, it gets you most of the way, it provides you a, a certainty beyond a reasonable doubt but it's not so certain that um there's not room for for your will to bridge the gap and, and say, well, um this is this is very likely true. Um, I think I will commit myself to this. Uh, so if that if there there is there is so there's this room for the act of faith, um but it's certainly very helpful for us to understand the truths of the faith as as much as possible. Um, in order to assist our minds, um, assist our wills rather to latch on to those truths, and I mean, um, in in the mind of of the the popes, um, and specifically Pope Leo the Thirteenth, um, Catholicism is able to provide very powerful motives of credibility, um, various rational motives for adhering toward the to the truths of the faith, such that a person who considers them objectively, considers the arguments objectively, um, and is of good faith, would be convinced uh, beyond a a reasonable doubt. So I I just want to quote for you um, these words, these very uh, kind of bold words of Pope Leo XIII in an encyclical he wrote in 1885, Immortali Dei. He says, It cannot be difficult to find out which is the true religion if only it be sought with an earnest and unbiased mind, for proofs are abundant and striking. We have, for example, the fulfillment of prophecies, miracles in great numbers, the rapid spread of the faith in the midst of enemies and in face of overwhelming obstacles, the witness of the martyrs, and the like. From all these, it is evident that the only true religion is the one established by Jesus Christ himself in which he committed to his church to protect and to propagate. So, this is the bold claim made by Pope Leo the Thirteenth, and it is it is our hope um, in this series of uh, apologetic conferences podcasts to make that claim um, hold water, um, to 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 go through the various aspects of the faith, provide rational uh, the rational basis for them, and. God willing, for the viewer to go away and say, you know, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I've never heard it explained so clearly. Um, so, I mean, really, in this, in these, in this series, we we are just addressing ourselves to anyone of, of goodwill who is interested in what Catholics believe and, and why they believe it. Um, so there's there's no strings attached. It's just like we just want to explain why we believe what we believe. Um, and let let the viewers um, decide for themselves whether they they think that the reasons we give are cogent or or not
0: we're going to be going through many different areas many different topics throughout this series and we're going to be covering a lot of topics that are specifically Catholic in nature things having to do with the Blessed Virgin Mary the Saints Uh, we're gonna be talking about the papacy in Rome and all that kind of thing Um, We aren't really going to be starting with Catholic things first. We're going to be talking more about just uh, is there a God, is there not a God, those type of very broad questions, and then we're going to kind of funnel into more specific Catholic things as we go along. Is that correct?
1: Yes, yes. So we want to give a coherent picture um, from start to finish of, of what we believe, and we actually have to start... In the area of reason alone, what what reason alone is able to prove? Um, so, sort of the the realm of what's called theodicy is like: what can I prove of God just by the activity of my natural reason? And we know this can be done because the the pagans um, before the coming of Christ, uh, Aristotle and Plato, for instance, they were able to make rational argumentation for the existence of a of a transcendent god who was was the only god there was you know one transcendent god so these truths that we can prove about god the nature of god um his role as creator of the universe uh the nature of man who man is his immortal soul the the end of man the natural end of man all of these things fall within the realm of reason and they're sometimes called in the catholic world preambles to the faith so, you don't need to believe them on the basis of faith. Um, they're certainly part of what Catholics are obliged to believe, but um, we are able to provide demonstrative proof of these things. So, so that's where we're going to start before moving to things that are supernatural truths and could not be known uh, by reason alone. So, it's it's interesting that <clears throat> I was mentioning that that Catholics um, very much believe in the ability of the minds to know reality. I, I would I would make the claim more than than other religions, and it's it's part of what we're required to believe. What we're we're required to believe in the power of reason to prove the existence of God. Um, in other words, the metaphysical proof for the existence of God that we're going to be going over in this in this podcast. Um, it's. Catholics are, are obliged to believe that it works. So when the modernist crisis, um, which is ongoing in the church, when it, when it was first starting in the pontificate of Pius, St. Pius X, he had Catholics make an oath against modernism. And one of the things that modernists denied, and it's very common today, um, agnosticism is, one, is sort of the uh, char- intellectual characteristic of our age, um, there's very much a doubt of the ability of the mind to know reality today. Um, but St. Pius X, he had the, um, all Catholics who are in a teaching position um, to make an oath. And, and part of the oath was was them saying, I profess that the human mind can demonstrate the existence of God. Um, so here's what this, this oath says. It says, first of all, I profess that God the origin and end of all things can be known with certainty by the natural light of reason from the created world that is from the visible works of creation as a cause from its effects that therefore his existence can also be demonstrated we're using that magic word gem- demonstrated when we say demonstrated we say well we can give you mathematical certainty in this case an even higher certainty metaphysical certainty so we should be able to provide evidence for the existence of God where if you deny the existence of God, you would basically deny the ability of the mind to know anything, the whole basis of the rational order. Um, and that, that God willing, that <laughs> that conclusion is so odious to someone that would say, well, it's safe for me to say that I am able to know something. And if I know something, then, uh, in other words, if I know, then if I have a notion of being, th- existing things, then I must necessarily conclude that there is a God. My only other option is to say, "Well, I don't know being, so I can I have no notion of existence whatsoever, and so I have no basis for concluding anything else." Because everything that we conclude in the rational order is based on that that notion of being that we have.
0: Right, and and we have had in history, and I'm thinking back to uh, two years ago now when we started the crisis in the church series. Uh, we we have had throughout history all of these. Uh, different philosophers trying to figure out how do you know what you know right kind of that epistemology metaphysical understanding of things Uh, and sometimes they go kind of far off and that's where we start to see some of these philosophical errors if you want more on that you can look back at Crisis in the Church series episodes 2 and 3 Father Wiseman did a great job of explaining that we're not going to get into all that here but broadly speaking if you can agree that you can know things through your reason Uh then we can start on a level playing field that's basically what you're saying here.
1: Right, right. But at this point, Andrew, it's time for a commercial break. Um, you can also okay. read my book, <laughs> The Realist Guide <laughs> to Religion <Relative> and Science, <laughs> where I explain but that- But wait, that there's more. <laughs> you too can become a realist. Um, so <laughs> what I try to explain in, in my book <clears throat> is that- if you are, are not, do not have this philosophical position that, that you believe in the ability of the mind to grasp reality at the level of our concepts, then you're necessarily going to fall into irrationality, what, what I was just explaining. Um, do I think that my mind is able to grasp the notion of being, that the notion of being that I have in my mind actually corresponds to reality? If I do not believe that my notion of being, basically my understanding of the word is, if I don't think that my understanding of the word is actually corresponds to reality, then then how can anything that I say to anybody be true? You know. So it's the most fundamental right. concept, the notion of being. That's what metaphysics studies: is is being. Um, what what is it <clears throat> that pertains to all things that exist by the fact that they exist? Um, so what are the properties of all existing things? That's what metaphysics studies. So, but, but the modern philosophers, they would say that our notion of being is no good, we, our, our concepts are no good, the, the concepts that we have in our mind, we can't know if they match with the reality. The only thing we can know is sense, sense data, sense knowledge, um, and that right. leads to massive, massive problems. Um, and I would argue, in a sense, uh, all the problems we have in the modern world are tied back to this philosophical view that dominates today. Yeah, believe it or not.
0: Right. but um so read the book to no know so we' I guess we're starting with I guess we're starting with the very basic question is there a God yes yes this is this is where we're starting and
1: we do have to make some assumptions um to embark on this question we as human beings um, because we we are not we do not stand above reality but we are in reality um we have to make assumptions that cert- certain intellectual principles are true. When we go back in our reasoning, all the way up to the, the chain of principles, to the top principles, um, we're going to reach certain principles that are ba- the basis for proving everything else. And, uh, and unless we assume that those principles are true, then we won't be able to prove anything. But it's it's obvious <clears throat> that you're, you're not able to prove every principle. Um, Otherwise, you would end up having a circular argument. You would be using things that are lower in the chain of reasoning to prove the things that are higher in the chain of reasoning. Um, so there's there's very, very basic principles that are necessary uh, for us to hold as being true, for us to prove anything at all. Um, so I just want to go over a couple of those principles. One of them is that nothing comes from nothing. So this is uh, another way to state the principle of causality um, that a, an effect uh, must be proportionate to its cause. So if you have a cause, it must be capable of producing the effect. um and if if you have nothing at all, then then nothing is going to result. I mean, nothing cannot be a cause. Um, so there's no such thing as spontaneous creation. Uh, there's no such thing as things popping into existence. If if I believe that things just randomly popped into existence without a cause, then I would have no basis for concluding about anything in the universe. If if I said, why is the fire heating? And why is there heat? Do I feel heat? I, I would have to say, well, it's either because the heat just randomly popped into existence, or it's because the fire is producing the heat. But I can't say because Anything can come from anything, you know. Um, So this is one of the most basic principles: nothing comes from nothing. And and the other is, uh, uh, the other one of these first principles, is that everything must have a sufficient reason for its existence. If I look around me and I see, okay, the bush exists, or the computer exists, or or whatever exists, um, there must be an adequate explanation for the fact that this thing is real. If if there is no adequate explanation for the fact that the the thing is real, if it's if it just exists for no reason whatsoever, again, I destroy the whole intellectual order. I, I, I'm saying that there's there's no way to account for anything that's existing, and therefore I'm, I'm not able to speak in any rational way uh, about reality. Um, so those those are the first principles of all thought, um, of, of all argumentation, of, of all knowledge. If I do not admit these principles, effectively I'm saying I don't know anything. Nothing that I'm able to state about anything can be true. So once okay. we admit these basic principles, you know, these first principles, then we can, we can go on to use them to derive certain conclusions about reality. Um, and say, okay, um, why do the things around me exist? What is this adequate reason? What is the sufficient reason for the things around me to exist? And I look at the things that exist, and, and I look at dogs, I look at cats, I look at bushes, you know, I look at I look at cars, and I say, do these things contain within themselves the total explanation for their existence, do I see in the dog some something that says to me this dog necessarily exists? It it has to exist. Um, there's no way that it could not exist. And if I saw that, then then I would conclude that it is a complete. It is in itself a complete explanation for its existence. Whereas if I say. You know, this dog doesn't have to exist. Um, at one time, it didn't exist. And in the future, it will not exist. Therefore, it's not something that gives a total explanation for its existence. Um, it's, it's what we would call a contingently existing thing. It happens to exist. It doesn't have to exist. And so I, I'm leaving the question of why does it exist unanswered. I haven't come to a complete and satisfying answer to the reality of why this thing before me, this dog before me exists because I cannot find the answer in it. Um, And the thing is, when when we look out over the universe, all the things that are within our common experience, no one of them says to us, I have to exist. I am a self-existing thing. I have the complete explanation for me being real within myself—I um, am the total explanation for my own existence. Um, that's not true of me. That's not true of, of you, Andrew. It's not true of anybody we know. Okay. Um, and if we look in the dictionary <clears throat> and we look at the definitions for things, and then these are these are hu- human beings giving an account of their knowledge of the of the real world around us. And, and we never find in the, exi- in the definition of things, um, necessarily existing thing. Um, you know, a dog is, is a four-legged canine that exists. You know, you never, you never find that in the definition. N- right. Nothing, nothing around, us. it's clear to, to every rational common sense mind that the, the universe around us consists of contingently existing things. Things that do exist, but don't have to exist. And so things that do not contain the total and complete explanation for themselves, for their existence in themselves.
0: Okay. That makes sense. So, so there, are, there is nothing that exists, just, just to kind of sum up what you've been saying, there's nothing that exists that, that must exist, basically for the entire order of the universe to continue to exist around it. Things can come well, and go and the world keeps spinning, essentially. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yes, yes, Um, or that says to us, um, I am a self-existing thing. Um, I am not in a position of receiving existence. I exist by definition, by what I am, Uh, I must exist. Just because I am what I am, I have to exist. Um, Nothing around us says that to us. Right. Yeah. And and this is this is a, a difficult concept for us to grasp. And uh, Aristotle goes to a yeah. lot of trouble in his metaphysics to explain why metaphysical thought is the most difficult thing to think about, um, mm-hmm. because of the nature of of our minds. We we find it much easier to think about tangible things, things of of the senses, and the, and the, the notion of being or contingency is is like farthest from material things, um, and so. What, what I do in my book is I try to go through a little exercise it's like let's make let's make three columns of different things um, in one column you have impossible things things that could never exist they're they're a contradiction in themselves like a rock that's that's heavier than God could lift or like a square circle uh, a circle is round by definition and if it's a square, then it's not a circle. So you can't be both a square and a circle at the same time, they're contradictory, right? Um, and that's the first column. So these things are, can never exist. And the middle column is things that could possibly exist, but do not exist. Um, and I, I put in there Bilbo Baggins, you know, the hobbits, um, hobbits could exist, they, they existed in the mind of J.R.R. R. Tolkien, but he didn't have the power to create them. <laughs> Um, yeah, they exist right. in the movies, but they don't, but they don't exist really. And I, I threw a joke. I actually threw a joke in there in that table. I don't know if anybody got it. I never heard back on that. But I said one I'm, of the, the I'm, things I'm that laughing. could possibly. Okay, <laughs> so you you caught it. <laughs> I said one of the things that could possibly it. exist <laughs> but doesn't exist is Velveeta cheese. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> there's there's a lot of things that, that could good. possibly exist. Um, like unicorns or Pegasus or whatever, but don't exist. And then there are existing things. Uh, you exist, I exist. Uh, the you know my, the, 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 you, you, your dog or or somebody else's dog or the 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 bush that we have in our front yard, they all exist. So so what is it that that determines what exists and what does not exist? If there's a lot of things that could exist but don't exist, um, then then why is it they don't exist? What, what is it that bridges the gap between the things that possibly could exist and the things that actually exist? Excluding out the things themselves, because if, if, there's, if there's no difference between these two columns, then, then everything would exist, right? Um, why do some things exist mm-hmm. and some things not exist? Well, there, there must be some cause that's accounting for that. <clears throat> why, why some things Some things must have been chosen to exist, um, and some things not to exist. That's why there's no unicorns, because whoever's in charge of making things exist, um, and it's not us, it's not me, it's not you, it's not the dogs, it's not the bushes, um, that cause must have been accounting for what is real, as opposed to what is not real. Um, Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. so I mean I. Just to just to put in another plug, you know I mean might as well quote myself in 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 my own book. Um, so I,
0: you know might as well. So you've already done so the there's work. This, I mean, let's just yeah use it I know. It I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: Ooh. and and maybe you can put this table up there, um, for the viewers to yep. see. But I, I say there I say when we come to the third column, the column of things that are real. We see that there must be some reason why they are so, that is, why they are something rather than nothing, in Leibniz's words. If there was a need for an extra cause to move from column two to column three, then we would have to say there is no difference between existing and non-existing, which is surely not the case. Those in column two have essence without existence, while those in column three have both. And so the cause that bridges the appalling gap between the two is the one that accounts for existence, that is, the very fabric of reality as such. This cause we commonly call God. So, if I see, if I perceive around me anything that that exists contingently, that doesn't have to exist, that doesn't have within itself the total explanation for existence, for its own existence, that is not self-existing, then, then my mind necessarily demands, where is this existence coming from? It needs a cause for its existence. And that cause must be some being that is providing the act of existence, that is making it real as opposed to just merely possible. Um, and, well, we would, we would claim that, that that cause of the existence of contingent beings is what human beings generally call God. Um, the first cause of the existence of existing of contingently existing things is, is what we call God. And if if I if I do not believe in a God, if I if I do not accept this, then I cannot give any account for why anything exists whatsoever. I can't give a rational explanation for why anything exists whatsoever. The contingency of the of all the things around us screams out. I need a cause for my existence and well um, that is a creator that that cause must be a creator
0: so I those who would not those who would deny the existence of God or say that we need a rational proof for the existence of God would simply say probably and I'm gonna play a little devil's advocate here, father they would probably simply say we just don't know yet science hasn't told us yet but there must be a reason out there uh, I was actually just on twitter earlier this morning or yesterday and saw a tweet from scientific american maybe or nasa or one of those accounts i follow and they said you know before the big bang there was no matter it was just pure energy and i looked at that and i said yes and that energy we call god that's more of the uh, proof from uh, i don't know a uh, first mover maybe it's a different quote than we're talking about here but uh how would how would you you know, so so an atheist is going to come to you and say, "Well, we just haven't figured it out yet." But there is a logical reason out there. It's this. How would you combat that? Yeah. So, um,
1: I would say to the atheist that we we are we are arguing at a different level here, and and what I have to try to do to the atheists typically they're very scientific minded people, and they have certain epistemological presuppositions um, and one of them being that that the only true knowledge is sense knowledge. So, they come come into this discussion assuming that the only way to prove anything is from things that can be observed. And I would argue, well, we can observe what I'm talking about, <clears throat> but you have to be willing to accept that our idea of being Um, Not our idea of forces, gravitational forces, or things that can be measured. Even things that cannot be measured, we can know. Our our mind has the ability to to know things that cannot be seen and cannot be measured. And not just gravity and forces of physics, what we would call material and efficient causes. Um, but, But we can know things such as being, which would pertain more to what's called the formal cause. And if I can get him to accept that, then we're all good. We're all good. But okay. if I cannot get him to accept that, then I would have to fall back on some sort of um, argument from the Big Bang um, with what's called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. This is has been popularized by uh, Protestant theologian William Lane Craig um, of Reasonable Faith. So he he does not believe in the um, the metaphysical argument for God. Um, I you know if you read his book from Plato to Leibniz, um, the cosmological argument throughout history, you will find in there that he doesn't accept the arguments of Saint Thomas Aquinas, the, the famous five proofs for the existence of God. I, we just went over the third of Saint Thomas's proof, the argument okay, from mm-hmm. contingency. Um, but William Lane Craig doesn't accept those. And so when he argues with atheists, he always goes to what's called the Kalam, cosmological argument. It's an argument made by Muslims in the Middle Ages, Muslim philosophers. It basically goes like this. It's like whatever has a beginning must have a cause. The universe has a beginning, therefore the universe must have a cause. Um, And let's just say that the, the Big Bang theory causes a lot of difficulties for atheists because they have to admit that basically... Uh, The universe began uh, from from effectively nothing. There was no space and time, and and, and in a single instant of time, you have the origination of of space, time, and matter. And there has to be an adequate explanation for that. And so, whatever caused that has to be outside of time, has to be outside of space, has to be outside of matter. Um, And yeah, it, it puts it makes the the atheists squirm, and everybody. Um, always ask, well, what was before the Big Bang? And, and the obvious answer is, well, God, God. Um, right. But the, the argument that we're going through here is far superior to the argument that Kalam cosmological argument, it does not rely upon some scientific theory. Um, and is, as we're going to see, we're able to derive from this cosmological argument a thick version of God rather than a very thin version okay. of God. Um, so the thick version of God would be a God with the attributes of God that, that we know also by revelation. There's so many attributes of of God that we can derive um, from this metaphysical proof. So when we conclude to therefore God exists, um, we, we, we must say what is contained in that notion of God that we've derived because there's many different ideas about God. God is just a word. So the what is the concept that corresponds to that that word God? It depends on the proof that you use. Um, so the proof of that where you reach a God who kicks off the universe and uh, with a big bang, a sudden burst of energy where he creates all the matter of the universe um, is is a God that's that's not so close to the the, the Catholic God um, because he's he's kind of more like the Deus God of the three Masons who. Who just sort of he he kicks off the first domino, he goes and takes a smoke break, you know, and you (laughs) know he he says, Wow, he just watches his own handiwork. (laughs) But he's not the God who's acting at every moment on the universe to sustain reality in the universe. So this argument goes back in time. It says, Well, there has to be somebody to kick it all off. But the argument that I'm giving you is uh, refers to a cause that must be acting at every moment, and and this is this is another this is something that's really really important for us to understand about what we just went through. Um, that when we talk about well, there must be a first cause for the existence of all contingently existing things. We are speaking about a cause that necessarily must act. At every single moment, for the things to exist, we can make a comparison between two different types of causality um, to illustrate this. So you can have, if I'm if I'm pounding a nail into a wall, all right. Um, so I'm I'm pounding the nail, and when I've done my work, I don't have to act on the nail anymore for it to stay there. I act in a couple of moments of time, I produce the effect and the effect remains without the cause continuing to act on the nail. So this is like called uh-huh. a per- per- accidens or accidental causality, um, where you just have to act on one moment of time and the effect remains without the cause needing to be there for, for the effect to exist. But if I go and I hang a picture on that nail. Um, and you, you know i've got i've got a few pictures here i've got a crucifix there and i've got a picture of saint Pius the 10th i've got archbishop Lefebvre. so so if 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 i want those pictures to remain there the nail has to remain on the wall so the nail has to be acting on the picture at every moment for the picture to hang on the wall and that's that's the way it is with causing existence For anything to hang out in reality, if it's a contingent thing, God has to be providing the act of existence. If He lets off providing the act of existence at at any moment, the existence, as it were, falls to the ground. The thing is reduced to nothing. So, this is how we can speak of God's providence Um, God must be providing the existence, the very fabric of reality at every moment for things to exist, because everything around us is contingently existing. It depends upon God at every moment. It's not a question of God just saying, boom, let's just make stuff. Let's just make the universe. And now I'm done. Um, But no, God has to act all the time for anything to exist at all.
0: This is why you're saying it's providing us with a more thick idea of who God is. It's because it's, he is someone who must be providing us with something at any given time and the moment he stops, it all falls apart instead of just sending the Big Bang out and whirling. And like he said, taking a smoke break. I love that analogy. Um, but <laughs> this is God must be continually active in creation, in the world, in the universe for things to continue.
1: Yes. Yes. And um, when, when I consider what what am I asking someone to admit in order to accept the existence of God, if i if i use this argument from contingency of st thomas versus the kalam cosmological argument well what i'm asking you to admit is basically that that contingent beings exist that that there are things which exist around us that do not have to exist that's all i need you to admit i mean and for me that's that's just so basic that's so obvious yeah like none, none of us have to exist and none of us have the adequate explanation for our own existence in ourselves And so, there must be some reason why we exist as opposed to non-exist, and that must be something that's giving us to existence. It must be provided from outside of us. Um, There must be some existence maker, some creator. So, I'm asking for really minimal commitment intellectually in order to get the, the person to accept the conclusion, whereas with the Kalam cosmological argument, I'm... I'm going to have to sit down to you, and we have to talk about the Big Bang theory, and we're going to talk talk about the measurements and and the CMBR, you know, the, the uh, co- cosmological microwave background radiation, and the distance of the stars, and so on. And if if you accept that, you would you would accept all this science and this this theory, which is backed up by certain observations, um, that the universe began. Um, you know basically from from nothing 13.7 billion years ago so for me yeah. i'm that 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 requires a much greater commitment and faith on the part of pers of a person than this this argument from contingency and also we get a much better god out of it if we can if we can say that
0: yeah well, it's it, it gives us a little bit of a springboard into what Revelation tells us. It's a little bit more easy. It's a little bit easier to get to that next level of understanding of God from this argument, which is is very interesting, Father. Uh, I guess the next point is then now that we have this basic definition that there must be a first cause of. Uh, sorry, I went back to the other argument. This first uh, contingent. I'm totally stumbling all over myself. This is hard. Stuff.
1: Yeah, this is not easy. This um, is not easy.
0: <laughs> so yeah, now that so we you, have you this, need a... now that we have this idea of of God, at a very basic level, what other attributes does this argument give us about God? What else can we know about God based on reason? Based on this argument?
1: Right. So we can we can drive a lot of. Of attributes of God, what God necessarily must be. If he, in fact, is the first cause at every moment of the existence of all contingently existing things, then we can derive many attributes of God. And let me just um, take a little side note to to whine and complain about the vast number of people out there who get St. Thomas Aquinas' arguments for the existence of God wrong. Um, and Even philosophers, I can expect Richard Dawkins to get it wrong, like in The God Delusion, and he gets it so wrong, he's not even close. These scientists out there who don't even understand metaphysical thought, and they just blow off St. Thomas, and they they make this caricature of his arguments, Um, they always think about him going back in time. They always think his arguments are about going back in time, but they're not going back in time. Um, They are... Climbing a causal chain that exists at every moment, that necessarily must exist at every moment, they abstract from time. They do not rely on time. So a lot of St. Thomas' arguments speak about an infinite regress of causes. And immediately people start thinking, oh, you mean going back in time? No, we don't mean going back in time. Please, please, please don't go down there. You're getting him wrong. This is not the way it is. Um, there's There's this PBS video that goes through the five... Uh, proofs of st. Thomas for the existence of God and he gets in the end. He says well, you know These these arguments actually may not hold water because you can go back in time with an infinite regress And that's where you need to say, you know, you, you need one of those pe- vast number of people YouTube talking heads out there today who love to criticize other videos where you would put like an X through the guy <laughs> and he was you he would, he would hear like booze in the background, you know, and like wrong stamped on that. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I mean, um, I'll leave that to you, Andrew. But uh but Fair yeah, enough. let's let's, <laughs> let's 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 treat St. Thomas's arguments with respect, at least the respect to try to get them right before we try to refute them. Um yeah there there's okay. another character out there that is so annoying. Um and Edward Fazer, who's, who's a great Thomistic uh, philosopher, and I'll promote his work too, what the heck, you know. So he, he has a book called Five Proofs for the Existence of God, but he, <clears throat> he addresses some of these caricatures of, of St. Thomas's arguments that, that are made, um, like Bertrand Russell, who, who says, basically, if, if God is needed as a first cause for everything, well, who caused God? And that's, that's when we get the booze out for Bertrand Russell as well. And we say, we cancel him.
0: And that's when we kind of go, that is the point. <laughs>
1: exactly. There has to be something that is uncaused to explain the existence of all contingent reality. Huh. Um, right. But he's yeah. he's Bertrand Russell would essentially be saying that our argument is that everything has a cause. And we never said that. St. Thomas never said that. Nobody ever said that. Nobody ever said everything has a cause. Therefore, there must be a, 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 a cause, an ultimate cause, and that's God. Uh, nobody ever made that argument ever know how. Um, but it's just a caricature. Um, And, and as a... A hallmark assignment for for this this podcast, I would I would have people go uh, listen to the epic debate, and it's a very short debate between Bertrand Russell and Father Frederick Copleston, SJ that took p- place on BBC Radio back in 1948. And I made a summary of this debate for my students, and I ended up putting it on Quora, but. Um, Father Koppelsen, he makes the argument from contingency, the same argument I'm making in this podcast. And Bertrand Russell, he just flounders and and he's haggling over terms and the meaning of, of terms. And, and basically he he says, he, he falls back on saying, well, um, it's meaningless to say the words like, like cause and contingency, that these are meaningless words he right. he falls back on saying that the mind is not capable of knowing reality, um, and right. that's where it ends. It's 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 not a long debate. Um, as a result,
0: right? If you if you can't, like we said at the very beginning, if you can't agree on that fundamental, we we can't go anywhere. Yeah,
1: I'd be like Bertrand. <clears throat> <clears throat> then why are we using the word "is"? I mean, if we if we can't coherently we can't have a concept for the word is that matches up with the reality then why are we talking at all there's a breakdown of communication at that point um we cannot predicate accurately of anything say x is y whenever we say that we're dealing with this faulty notion of the word is so anyway i digress um so let's 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 talk about some of these these attributes about God that we can derive from this cosmological proof. It, it's, it's also St. Thomas's proof. is also called a cosmological proof because it relies upon what we observe, um, but it's a metaphysical proof as opposed to a scientific proof. So this metaphysical proof, where we say <clears throat> there must be a first cause for the existence of contingently existing things. We have to say that God possesses exactly what the things around us lack. So he must have the adequate explanation for his existence in himself. He must be self-existent. There must not be this difference between his essence or his nature and his existence. His his essence, what he is, must be to exist. Um, He has to be a pure act of existence. He must be uncreated. He doesn't need someone to provide him his existence because that's what he is. By his very nature, he is an existing thing. So he has the adequate explanation for his existence in himself. He is uncaused and he's utterly simple. He's not put together. Um, there's, There's not like this nature that needs to be given existence from the outside, like the nature of man. You can think of Bilbo Baggins, or like a Hobbit. That Bilbo Baggins is is an essence. We have a concept of what a Hobbit is, but it doesn't have existence, so it needs to be provided existence. There's nothing in the essence of Hobbit that demands existence, and they don't exist. But with God, He exists by definition. It is what He is. He's in the business of isness, as as they say. Um, <laughs> so he's uncreated, he's utterly simple, he's not composed of metaphysical parts, essence, and existence. He he has to be unique. There can only be one of him. Because of the fact that he's utterly simple, he's just an act of existence, and so it's impossible for there to be two beings who are pure existence. If you say I've got being one and being one, its essence is the same as its existence. I got being too, its essence is the same as its existence. Well then there's nothing to differentiate them. There would there be nothing to distinguish them one from another. Um, so God, the being who is who is pure existence, must necessarily be unique. There cannot be two beings whose essence or being is to exist. Um, God must be omnipotent. If if he has this capacity to give existence to things which do not have existence of themselves, then he must have the capacity to make anything that could possibly exist. I mean, for, for God, there is no limits to what he can create other than what reality can sustain. So I said it's impossible for there to be a square circle, but but for anything that is possible, just by the fact that you can give existence, you have the power to give existence, um, you can make anything. And so th- there's there's no limit to your power because there one, one reason for this is that you're not limited by a subject that you're acting upon. So, if if I want to make something myself, then I'm going to be limited by the thing that I'm acting upon. If I want to build a house, I'm going to be limited by the nature of the wood and the nails and so on. I'm already, I'm taking some of the that already exists and I'm working with it, I'm modifying it. So, I'm going to be limited by the, the constraints of these already existing things that I'm shaping and modifying to make something else. But that's not the way it exists for God. He starts the blank slate and he just... I'm going to make something exist that formerly had nothing of existence, and if you can do that, you can make anything. So, so God's omnipotent. Um, God is also unchanging. He, um, he is pure existence, and if you're pure existence, you're if you're utterly simple, a uh, simple act of existence. The only thing that you could change to is non-existence. There's there's nothing else, nothing else, because You don't have any qualifications on your existence it's just you exist that's it you're just pure active existence so there's no qualifications there's nothing to be added Um, there's there's no limitation on your isness so God could only the only thing for him possibly to change to is non-existence and well he can't do that because he is by his nature an existing thing. I mean, it's it's his very nature to exist. So it's impossible for him not to exist. Um that's the only thing he could change to, and so he's unchanging. But that doesn't mean that he's inert. Whenever we think of unchanging things, we, we think of rocks or books or whatever, things that just sit around. Um, but this is this is God unchanging in a supreme level of activity. So he's he's at the the very top of the ontological chain, and he is the most active being. I mean, if he's sustaining everything in existence at every moment, then he's doing a heck of a lot more than you and I are, (laughs) you know? Um, Right. So what it means is simply that what God does, he does always, and he never ceases from doing what he does, but he doesn't um, alter his activity. Um, also, he's eternal. He's not in time. He's not subject to succession. Anything that is in time um, changes by the fact that it's in one moment, then it's in the next moment, and the so on. It's like time is like a river. Um, we can we can think of of a river, <clears throat> and if you're in the river, you're 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 flowing. Things succeed one another. Um, whereas God is like someone who is is above the river. He's above all time. Um, he stands above all time, at a single point of existence. So he's eternal. He's eternal. He has always existed, has always been supremely active um, doing what he does and being what he is. Um, so if things exist at a at a certain time, if if he will to bring things into existence at a certain time, he can do that because he's above time. So he stands outside of time and he wills whatever effects happen in time from one act that's eternally existed. So if if I, to give an example, if, if I were able to take all the activities that I did for 2021 and, and I was able to say, I want everything that I'm going to do for 2021 to happen. And by the fact that I wanted it, it actually happened just by the act of my will. It actually happened. Um, then I would I would be like God. So so God is standing in one point, um, one eternal moment, and He wills all that He wills with that one act, and by the fact that He wills it, everything that every effect that He desires happens. So He doesn't have to wait around for you know twenty one twenty one to january first to ha- to to come around and he does the things for january first then he does the things for january second he doesn't wait around he just wills things from eternity and they happen when he wills them to happen by the fact that he wills them wow that would that would be an amazing power i mean
0: <laughs> if any of us could yeah that do that that's fascinating
1: yeah um there's a word in the Psalms, "Omnia um, all that God wanted, he He did. And we could say all that he wants is done, is done by Yes. the fact that he wants it. Whereas for us, it's not enough for me to want it. I have to do it as well. I have to execute. But in God, willing and executing is one and the same thing. Um, so... God is simple, unique, omnipotent, unchanging, eternal. He's also immaterial, um, because material things necessarily <clears throat> have limitations. Um, they they are in uh, they are changing. Material things change by the very nature. If you if you are material, you have parts. Um, you undergo change. You're passive. You're not supremely active. God can't be material for that reason. God has to be perfect. Um, Things that are imperfect are incomplete. They need completion. They lack something. Uh, but God is pure existence. There's nothing that can be added to God. There's nothing that he can take on. Um, so if, if if he's just um, pure being, then, then what are we going to add to God? Nothing. God has to be pure goodness. Um, It sort of goes with perfection. The philosophical definition of goodness is for you to achieve your end. Um, The end of a thing defines what is good for it. Um, so, So think of a soccer game. The goodness in a soccer game is scoring goals. That's the whole point of the game is to score goals. And we would define a team as good by their ability to score goals. And we would define a team as bad by their inability to score goals. So, um, if the soccer team achieves its end, we would say they are a good team. If they don't achieve their end, they're not a good team. Right. Um, so with God, we would say, is God achieving his end? And we would say, yes, he is. God is supremely achieving what he is, and in his one eternal moment, there is there's nothing more that he could be achieving. He's always at the top of his game. Um, Whereas we're we're not always at the top of our game. Um, Sometimes we're, well, a lot of times, every day we're we're sleeping. You know, when I'm sleeping, I'm not at the top of my game. I don't know (laughs) if you're at the top of your game. Um, My activity right now is, is much, much higher than my activity when I'm sleeping. So, I would be better, I would be superior as a human being, if I never slept, and I was always doing podcasts about metaphysics, um, but I'm I'm not capable of that, so I'm I'm not as good as I could be. But that's not true of God. Then um, God has to be omniscient um, for Him to create everything, sustain everything in existence. He has to know the things that He's that He's creating. Um, he has to have knowledge of what He's doing. Um, there's no way God can be. Just sort of blindly emitting stuff. Um, so he, if he creates and sustains in existence all things, then he knows them intimately. And what does he sustain in existence? Everything. So he knows all things. And then uh, lastly, he has to be all loving. So again, the philosophical definition of, of loving, um, and I just I saw Matt Walsh giving this definition um, the other day, to to Ben Shapiro on a on a podcast, uh, he just gave the Thomistic definition of of loving, and that's to will the good of of another. <clears throat> that's what it means to love. Mm-hmm. And what what does God do? God gives to all things the ultimate good, and that is the good of of existing as opposed to non existing. Um, he's the reason why we're real, um, and that the ultimate poverty is not to exist. So so God. Is sustaining all things that exist in existence, um, and that that's from His goodness, from His love. He's He's kind of loving things into existence at each moment, and um, it's it's only giving on the part of God. Of course, we're not we're not capable of perfecting God. We don't perfect God. We don't add to Him, and and so when God loves, it's gratuitous. Um, it's it's a pure love. It's it's a loving. Without getting anything back in in himself, of course we we adore God. We we uh, give our acts of love, but because we have a duty to do so, um, not as if right. we're perfecting God, you know. So right. so he those doesn't are, those need
0: are, our our worship. He doesn't need our affection. Even he desires it, but out of but it's something that that is owed to him out of out of the benefit of us being created.
1: Right but regardless of of what we do um god is going to be utterly perfect and my my homage does not complete him whereas right. whenever we give something to somebody um if if i if i give a gift to a friend then i mean i would want to to want to give it as as purely as possible without expecting anything back but at the same time <laughs> I'm still going to be a little bit satisfied by the fact that I'm giving the gift. Um, I'm going to be kind of happy with myself. I'm going to be kind of fulfilled with giving a gift. Or if I mm-hmm. I, I see um, some homeless person on the side of the road and I give him 50 bucks, I'm going to walk away and I'm like, well, I don't expect anything back. But at the same time, um, I'm going to be perfected by doing that action. It's going to have mm-hmm. an effect on me, which is not true of God. Um, so, those, those that's that's ten attributes that we can say must necessarily belong to God by the fact that He is the source of the existence of contingently existing things. Um, and that book I was referring to of Edward Fazer is is very good with deriving these attributes of, of God. And and these these attributes of God they. They match up quite nicely with the attributes of God that are revealed in Scripture and especially in the incarnation of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, they, they, this is where, where reason and faith just s- kind of seamlessly meet together. Um, it's amazing what reason can uh, perceive of God, it, what God must be if he is the source of reality, and to compare with with the incarnation of our Lord and say, well, they they match up quite nicely.
0: Wow, that is beautiful. I had never seen. I'd I'd studied uh, Aquinas' proofs. I had gone through some of this before, but I had never seen those uh, those ten attributes. Um, just, but but you're right. It, it logically does flow all one from the other, and it makes sense. And it's a it's a beautiful thing.
1: It is. It is. Um so as i say if if people are just willing to accept this line of argumentation um, which to a certain degree requires a level of uh, abstraction but on the other hand is quite simple namely that, that there right. the, the things around us uh, do not have an adequate explanation for their own existence themselves therefore they must be receiving existence for for us to gives any manner of account for the fact that they exist, and that existence must be an existence provider, uh, must have the capacity to give existence, it must be a necessarily existing thing, he he must uh, exist of of himself. And from there, well, the rest of these things follow logically.
0: Well, Father Robinson, uh, wow, that was a heck of a way to kick off a series. Um, (laughs) We got deep, we got chewy, uh, and it was fascinating. (laughs) Um, so thank you. And I, and I can't wait to be here in the seat, uh, with you and the other priests as we go through all the rest of the apologetics episodes on that note, Val. uh, what do we have planned coming up next?
1: Yeah. So next, <clears throat> I, th- I think of what I would just like to talk about some of the, the two primary objections that people make against the existence of God. So now that we've, we've seen St. Thomas's argument and flesh that out see the two strongest objections that have historically been made against the existence of God. So stay tuned for that. Um, Hopefully it'll be enlightening.
0: Absolutely. Father, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us and God bless you.